This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out of your own, always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust? Hello, I'm Ayana Young, and I welcome you to For the Wild podcast. Today we are speaking with Starhawk as a part of a special series of interviews in collaboration with Living Village Culture and The Compass at Lightning in a Bottle. Starhawk, along with many other visionaries, will be speaking at this year's Lightning in a Bottle, and I'll have the honor of facilitating panels with these Earth Warriors. Starhawk is one of the most respected voices in modern Earth-based spirituality. She is the author or co-author of 12 books, including The Spiral Dance, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess, which is long considered the essential text for the neo-pagan movement, and now classic ecotopian novel The Fifth Sacred Thing. Her works have been translated into Spanish, French, German, Danish, Dutch, Italian, Portuguese, Polish, Czech, Greek, Japanese, and Burmese. Starhawk is one of the prominent leaders in the revival of Earth-based spirituality and goddess religion. She is a co-founder of Reclaiming, an activist branch of modern pagan religion, and continues to work closely with the Reclaiming community. Her archives are maintained at the Graduate Theological Union Library in Berkeley, California. Starhawk is a veteran of progressive movements from anti-war to anti-nukes and is deeply committed to bringing the techniques and creative power of spirituality to political activism. She is a founder of Earth Activist Trainings, teaching permaculture design grounded in spirit and with a focus on organizing and activism. Together with Charles Williams and others, she co-teaches EAT courses in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. She also champions social permaculture, the application of permaculture principles to social organizations, policy, and strategy. She holds a BA in Fine Arts from UCLA in 1973. She received an MA in Psychology with a concentration in Feminist Therapy from Antioch University West in 1982. 
She has taught in many Bay Area colleges and universities, including John F. Kennedy University, Antioch West, the Institute of Culture and Creation Spirituality at Holy Names College and Wisdom University. She is presently an adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies. <laughs> what an incredible life's work. Thank you so much for being on the show, Starhawk. Uh, you're welcome. So I would like to start this off by acknowledging the cloud of skepticism that surrounds paganism which dishonors the long lines of ancient European cultures that were rooted in the sacredness of the earth and our inextricable connection to all that is life, spirit, and elemental. And I was hoping that you could begin by taking us into this journey towards reclaiming the ancestries of old Europe by sharing with us some tales of pagan goddess cosmology, perhaps a favorite creation story you have. Well, my favorite creation story comes from the fairy tradition, which is to go back to the little people of Scotland from not just before Christianity, but really even before the Celtic invasion. The story goes that the goddess before anything was formed, was alone out in the vast wildness of space. And she got lonely. And so she divided herself in two. She looked into the mirror of space and said, whoa, how beautiful I am. And suddenly that beauty became another being. And she was so taken with her beauty she made love to herself, and that lovemaking created an orgasmic ecstasy that vibrated and rippled out through the universe and started to create the formation of all the things that exist. But that, that ripple, that wave was so strong that it actually tore the goddess other self away from her, and as it began to circulate and move away, she began to change form and become more different and become more male. And so that created a polarity of male and female, but it's not a binary polarity. The god has an aspect of the blue god who's kind of androgynous and the flute-playing, joyful, childlike love spirit. And then the green god, that's the god of plants and vegetation. And finally, the horn god, who is the god of the hunt and of the animal world. But always they are circling back to the goddess herself. And so it's a cycle. It's not a split really. It's a movement, and that movement generates the energy that keeps the universe in motion and alive. So that's the creation myth I love, the idea that the universe is born in a great orgasm. Mm, thank you for sharing that. You know, recently I, I've spoken to Lila June, who's a daughter of Dene, Cheyenne, and European lineages, and a student of global cycles of violence and the destruction 
of many cyclical relationships between human beings and nature. And when she speaks of the journey towards decolonization and reclaiming one's indigeneity, Lila reminds us that the same violent and oppressive forces that precipitated the Native American genocide also waged war on the original Earth-centered cultures of Europe. So I'm wondering if you could talk about this clashing of paradigms that occurred in old Europe and the relationship between the rise of the Christian church and the dissemination of European indigenous women. You know, I met Lila June when I was at Standing Rock, and I had the wonderful privilege of being in a sweat that she poured. And when I got there, you know, it was beautiful. It was at dawn. Uh, It was cold, but we were all out there getting ready and preparing for the sweat. And I looked over, and she was wearing a T-shirt that said Boudica. Boudica was an ancient queen of Britain who waged rebellion against the Romans after her daughters were raped and came very close to overthrowing Roman rule in Britain. So I found that really amazing. And then in the course of the sweat, Lila June was talking about the witch persecutions and their impact. And I had been meditating on that and on that question of how do people who have European heritage connect to our own indigenous roots because everybody, if you go back far enough, has indigenous roots. You know, everybody comes from people who lived closely with the land and lived in harmony with the land. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have survived. Uh, So it doesn't mean that get to walk in and claim like we're indigenous in certain spaces, but it does mean that we have a way, path into that kind of understanding and sensibility through our own ancestry if we choose to look for it. And I had been meditating on that and really got a message that European people need to come to terms with the witch burnings in order to heal. What happened was, if you go very, very far back, I'm talking like 7,000 BCE in Europe. You find cultures that were focused, again, on the mother that held women in high honor, uh, that were centered around growing things and planting, and where the imagery of their religious life was all about fertility about regeneration, uh, with images of things like plants and female bodies and animals and life and a rich symbolic language that went along with that. Those were cultures that were peaceable. There's not a lot of evidence for warfare or violence. And there are cultures that were relatively egalitarian. There's not huge differences in grave goods or you know, huge monuments for some people and nothing for other people. Then there were invasions of peoples who came off Central Asia, who were sky god worshippers, who were horse cultures, who were a very different kind of social organization. And you can look at European mythology You know, you can look at things like the Greek gods and goddesses, and you can really see in there 
this record of an older mythology that, again, is centered around the mother and around the power of the earth and around life and regeneration, overlaid by a newer mythology that's centered around chieftains and warfare and heroes that are heroes of war and violent. And you'll have things like goddesses, someone like Aphrodite, who originally was the great goddess in her own right, becomes the love goddess and gets married off to a god. Or Hera was another form of the great goddess, becomes sort of the the queen of Zeus, the prime god. And if you read the myth, she's never actually all that happy about it. <laughs> so that was one transition that happened very early on. You know, you can still trace it in things like culture and fairy tales, and you can still trace remnants of that earlier sensibility. In most of Europe, you know, a lot of that very old culture remained. Uh, There were healing traditions. There were rituals and rites of connection with the earth. There were seasonal celebrations. There were customs that put you, again, in touch with the earth. Maybe it was something like making a harvest doll out of the last sheaf of wheat, or maybe it was something like going out in the middle of winter and wassailing the trees, uh, singing to the apple trees and offering them pails of apple cider as a gratitude offering. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of different rituals Some of them actually still survive in different forms in Europe. You know, you can still see Morris dancing in England or something like the hobby horse uh, in Padstow that comes out on the 1st of May. A lot of times people have forgotten their original meaning, but many of the rituals and customs still exist. Here in Germany in May, every town has a maypole. You know, in Switzerland, there's still processions and carnivals and mass figures and sort of wonderful, amazing, and maybe to us somewhat strange rituals and rites that go on. But in the 16th and 17th centuries, when the church was under this tremendous pressure because of economic changes going on in Europe, shifts in power balances, What happened was it was kind of like, just like today we see this war on terrorism as an excuse for implementing all kinds of other law restrictions and consolidating power and keeping people from often confronting some of the real dangers because they're fixated on, you know, these potential dangers of terrorism. Well, the church used witches in the same way. They The idea was if the peasants were afraid of witches, then they'd be, you know, looking for the witches and looking for the, you know, suspecting their neighbors and attacking their neighbors rather than uniting and rebelling against the overlords and against some of the oppressive practices of the church at the time. 
Uh, and so they unleashed the persecution against witches, and they really created a whole ideology for it, the idea that these ancient customs and traditions were really the worship of the devil, and that women got together secretly and went out and, you know, had intercourse with Satan and did all kinds of evil things. They unleashed a horrible wave of persecution in Europe that took the lives of tens of thousands, women and men, over a period of several hundred years, from the late 1400s until the early 1600s. In America, the Salem witch trials at the end of the 1600s were kind of like the very tail end of that. Um, But more than the actual numbers of people killed, it was what it did to the psyche of Europe. It made the old healing traditions and the herbalism and the women who practiced it seem suspect. Forms of knowledge that didn't come from male authority and the approved authorities were suspect and dangerous made anything that had to do with the intuition, with a view of the world that saw life infusing matter and infusing the natural world. It made that all suspect and dangerous. It made women who held property or who had power or who stood up and had independent thoughts and stood up for themselves and became prominent, it made those women targets. And it made, I think, deep inside our psyche as women is a fear uh, that actually I think is an old archetypal collective unconscious fear that comes from those times of being visible, being seen, stepping forward, making yourself vulnerable. So... You know, there are many, many ways in which when we try to get back to our own indigenous roots, it's like we hit this block that makes all of that seem scary and dangerous or ridiculous and, you know, not approved of. And I think it makes it hard for us to go back through that path to our own roots when we have European heritage. It uh, makes it much e- seem much easier to take somebody else's heritage, <laughs> but then that often becomes kind of a form of cultural appropriation. So I think it's important for us to know that history. If we know that history, then we don't have to be ruled by it, and we can allow that fear to pass through and say, okay, behind that fear there may be enormous treasures of wisdom and understanding and ways of connection to the natural world and to one another and to that deep sense of compassion and creativity and regeneration that infuses the universe and that we like to call goddess.
My goodness, what a beautiful journey that you just took us through this history and and how fear is keeping people from looking back or keeping women from reclaiming this indigeneity. It's just fascinating to explore the roots of the suppression of the feminine and how malevolent depictions of women have trickled through history and you know, I actually looked up the word witch in the dictionary and it just receives this dark connotation. The dictionary literally says a woman thought to have evil magic powers, an ugly or unpleasant old woman, or a girl or woman capable of enchanting or bewitching a man. So it's really sad, of course, to see this disconnection and the separation to women's roots indigenous roots, European roots. And what's so beautiful is many Western women at this point have begun to reclaim the title of witch as healers or life givers and earth tenders and protectors. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the power of reclaiming the identity of woman and witch in this modern context. Yes. I mean, I think as you've been saying the word witch has sort of a dual connotation. One is the dangerous, evil, ugly, old hag, and the other is the young, beautiful, but dangerously seductive woman. For a lot of us who consider ourselves witches, it's been important to reclaim the word because reclaiming the word means bringing forth that history and facing it and no longer having it be a kind of shadow in the unconscious, but rather being able to understand it consciously and consciously say, hey, we're willing to claim our power as women, and we are willing to stand forth and not be afraid, and to say that there are many sources of knowledge and wisdom, and not all of them come from the male authorities or the academy, that our intuition and our deep sense of knowing and our spirituality are also valid forms of knowledge. Mm, thank you. And I would love to talk more about the importance of ritual in reclaiming an earth-centered worldview. And you had mentioned rituals, and I'm wondering how can these rituals help us engage and grow into deeper relationships with the land and ourselves and one another? And then furthermore, how do they help us engender creative power in political and earth activism? Well, ritual is something that you do that lends a particular deep kind of importance to what you do it about. You know, if you do rituals that celebrate the cycles of the season, it's a way of saying, you know what, the turning of the season means something. It's important. It's something to pay attention to. It has resonances in our own changes, in our own growth and development. If you do rituals to celebrate your life passages, again, it's saying, like, this is something important. This is something that needs to be marked. You imagine if somebody dies and there's no ceremony, there's no funeral, there's no memorial, how empty, how unfinished that would feel. And the same thing if someone is born, you want to celebrate, you want to honor that, you want to do something to say, hey, this marks a really important 
change and a really important occasion. So when you do a ritual, it's a way of taking, often taking emotional, psychic, abstract ideas and turning them into concrete actions so that it speaks to many dimensions of yourself, not just the intellectual self, but also the emotional self, uh, the sensual self, the embodied self, um, what we call your younger self. So if you're doing a ritual, for example, to celebrate uh, the spring, then you think about what are those symbols? What are the things that symbolize or embody uh, those forces of renewal and regeneration, you know, and that's why so many of the spring rituals involve things like eggs. <laughs> uh, also, if you live close to the earth and you raise chickens, you know that in the spring they start laying eggs again. <laughs> and it's great after the winter when they haven't been laying so many. You might have things like spring buds or spring flowers or green. Uh, for the color of growth and the new shoots coming out of the earth or seeds, you know, and do something around planting seeds and think about whether you're planting in the garden, but also what seeds are you planting for yourself for the coming year. So in some ways, ritual is kind of like poetry in that it's taking abstract ideas and turning them into concrete, sensual images that you then enact and that brings about a change. So when we think about political action, the definition I've always liked for magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. That's Dion Fortune's definition. She was an occultist in the early part of the 1900s. Um, but I think that's also a good definition for political action, that not just about changing who holds power or changing a particular policy. It's about changing the consciousness. It's not even just about stopping something like the the code access pipeline. It's about changing the consciousness that allows that pipeline to even be conceived of or built in the first place. And to do that, we need all kinds of activism including ritual, including symbolic acts that we take specifically to shift that consciousness. So again, like at Standing Rock, it was very beautiful to be in a space that was consciously held as a spiritual space and where people really said over and over again, everything we do is an act of prayer. If we go march to the gate or we march up to the place where they're drilling or we take you know, a foot of sacred land. All of that is a prayer. It's a ceremony. Ceremony isn't just, you know, what you do in the sweat lodge or meditating under a tree. It can be marching on the street. It can be writing a letter to your congressperson. It can be anything you do with that focused intention. That reminded me of a quote from a working definition of reclaiming, and it's quoted, we know that to name these things as sacred is an inherently political act, for what is sacred must not be exploited or despoiled. 
we also know that action in the world in the service of the sacred is one of the core expressions of our spirituality. And I think that what you were describing this ritual and prayer in collaboration with action is full and holistic and one without the other is incomplete. And I think talking about the decay of cultural ceremony has accompanied the rise of hegemony and capitalism. You know, most of us grow up deprived of traditions that ground us in the earth and our communities and our unique gifts. And resultant is a disconnected fog that blankets our society. And the young people of today are left stumbling for a purpose, yearning, perhaps even unconsciously, for guidance from their elders. And as the future appears grim with climate and biological collapse, what are your thoughts on how initiation ceremonies help ground and give purpose to people at pivotal moments in their lives? And what have we collectively lost as a culture by shedding such customs? I think initiation ceremonies for young people are very important. They're part of how a culture or society helps young people make that transition from child to adult or from adolescent to adult. And again, they're a way of marking and saying, hey, these changes your body is going through, they're important and you're important. You are an important member of the community and the community is here to help you go through uh, this change and be welcomed as part of us. So in our community, reclaiming, which we mentioned a couple times, is our tradition of the craft, of witchcraft, our goddess tradition that is um, very much involved also in political activism and personal healing and in earth healing as part of our spiritual tradition. We do coming-of-age ceremonies for young women to celebrate their first menstruation because we feel it's important that this is recognized as something that's beautiful and natural and not something to be ashamed of. So we'll do something like take the girl and her mother out to the hills or the beach and tie their hands together and they run together as far as the mother can run. And when she gets tired, we cut them apart and let the daughter run on alone. And then we go back to someone's house and we spend uh, an afternoon telling stories about our own first menstruation, giving her gifts, and then in the end there's a big feast of red foods that the men prepare. And she's welcomed by the men and also people who are a fluid gender um, because we feel it's important that young girls know that this is something the whole community can celebrate. Again, it's not something shameful or something embarrassing. It's something to uh, be celebrated. And we do a similar ritual for the young men where, again, they go through a challenge and the men take them off and instruct them in mysteries. And then they come back and are welcomed by 
the community and by men and women both. Uh, I think every traditional culture has some kind of rite of passage. And I think without that, young people create their own, and often their own will involve something like drugs or alcohol or some other kind of risk-taking, because I think intuitively we know we need that challenge. We need to face something difficult and overcome it or, um, you know, face a danger and get through it in order to develop that sense of self and confidence and strength that you need to have in dealing with the adult world. So if culture doesn't provide that, then I think young people try to find that for themselves and oftentimes get into some bad situations as a result. Thank you for that analysis and also for sharing the stories of the initiation for young women. I got chills when you were speaking about the young woman and her mother running down the beach. That was beautiful. And while thinking about cultural ceremony and how we make relation to our world, the dominant paradigm is so afraid of dying. The medical system is framed in a way of beating death or killing that disease or, you know, extending life in unnatural ways. And we are in turn profoundly disassociated from death. And, you know, we don't touch our dead. We no longer bury the bodies of our loved ones directly in the earth that nourish them. And many of us have hollow, if any, customs to honor ancestors. So this severance with our relationship to death has left us out of touch with the circle of life and it's impacting the way we heal from loss and connect to our existences so i'm wondering how does the pagan view of death differ from that of the dominant paradigm and how do you think this relationship with death shapes the way we live i think in paganism we see death as being part of life it's not something to be Feared, although it's certainly not something you rush towards, <laughs> but it's a natural part of life. It's something we will all experience, uh, and without it, there is no life. There could be, you know, if we didn't die and make way for another generation, um, 
there would be no way that we could all live here on this earth. So, um, and many pagan traditions believe in some form of rebirth, that when you die, your spirit continues on and you come back again in another form at another time. Um, so we have ceremonies, you know, when someone is dying, we tend to gather and be with them and tell them stories about how they've impacted our lives, sing to them, meditate, pray with them, kind of sing them over into the other world. And we have memorials, of course, for people who died where we can remember them and tell stories about them and comfort the people who are left behind. But death can be a beautiful thing. Again, it's a natural thing that's part of the whole cycle of life. And it's not an ending. It is an opening into some other dimension. We also have rituals like our Samhain ritual at Halloween every year where we honor our beloved dead, mourn them, and where we like to think the dead can come back and visit you for a night. Uh, that's the original origin of a lot of those Halloween customs, like you know, candles and pumpkins were lights to help your ancestors find their way back to your house, come back for a visit. It kind of all comes back to community and having people around you to celebrate and to engage in these rituals and customs. And in recent decades, you know, we've seen waves of people attempt to create alternative communities in resistance to the capitalist system, such as homesteading, communes, etc. Yet the idea of a flourishing community is often romanticized and it's underestimating the hard work it takes to create one and in the wake of an individualistic paradigm people struggle to truly build collaborative and regenerative relationships to one another i was just reading one of your more recent books the empowerment manual a guide for collaborative groups and it dives into this so i'm wondering if you could Tell us some of the common struggles you've witnessed. Do you believe that these challenges stem from our current cultural conditioning, or are there inherent flaws in human beings? Yeah, I wrote the empowerment manual because I've been, you know, working in different kinds of groups for many decades, and I kept seeing them all run into the same kinds of problems, mostly involving how do you deal with conflict, and um, particularly groups that define themselves as non-hierarchical, as not having a top-down structure, uh, I think need some other tools for dealing with conflict, because we grow up in families where, you know, mom can kind of come in and say, hey, you kids, shut up, stop fighting, be good to your brother. He's younger than you. And when we're in our collectives or our permaculture guilds or whatever and everybody's an equal, there's nobody who has the authority to come in and say, hey, you kids, you know, stop that. You know, behave yourself. So we need other tools for um, getting people to behave respectfully and 
think well of one another and be willing to face the uncomfortable process of actually dealing with our conflicts directly. And um, so in the Empowerment Manual, I talk about different tools for communication and for allocating power in groups and for mediating and resolving conflicts. Uh, and my hope is that it helps. I feel like if our groups function more effectively, then everything we do is more effective. Could you share with us some of these tools to navigate or reconcile conflict? Well, one of my favorites comes out of the world, actually, business management, uh, a group headed by a guy named Peter Senge, uh, where they talk about the learning organization. He talks about backing down the ladder of inference, that something happens, you know, an event happens. You know, I walk into a party, I see my neighbor, I go to the table to sit down and talk to her, and she gets up and goes away. You know, that's the event. That's what a video camera would record. Uh, well, that generates feelings in me. Maybe I feel hurt or surprised or shocked or rejected, and that feeling tends to make me start thinking of data to support it. So I'm thinking back on all the times that neighbor has like said something disrespectful or gotten mad at me, whatever, and I start trying to find a reason for her behavior. You know, and maybe that reason I come up with is um, she's mad at me about this certain thing or uh, she hates me or she doesn't like me for this reason or that reason. And then that reinforces the feeling and it can finally lead to, you know, an action on my part. You know, I might be telling myself a story about, um, you know, she's a terrible person like all those other mean girls in high school that never liked me. And I'm just going to have to do something about this because it's so uncomfortable. I can't stand not doing anything. I'm going to go up and just, like, say, I won't say it because it's a podcast, right? I'm going to say something nasty right to her face, you know, and then I do that, and that creates another event. Uh, whereas if I can back down that ladder and sort of say, okay, here's what happened. She got up and walked away. I actually don't know why she did that. Rather than whipping myself up into this whole cycle of emotional frenzy, maybe I could back down and ask, hey, Susie, at that party last night, I came over to sit down and talk to you, and you got up and walked away. What's going on? <laughs> uh, I might even disclose some of my discomfort or my you know, assumptions and check them out and see if they're true. You know, I wondered if you're angry at me about something. Would you be willing to talk to me about it? And, you know, to listen to what I hear. And I might hear, yeah, I am angry at you about this and that. Or I might hear, no, I'm angry, but not at you. Right? Or I might hear, I ate something terrible and just had to rush to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know what it is. 
until I actually ask and check it out. And I think if we become more skillful at doing that, then we can actually certainly avoid escalating conflicts and sometimes resolve conflicts much more simply. Uh, It's when we whip ourselves into our assumptions about what other people are thinking and feeling and doing and why they're doing things that we get entrenched often in some really negative patterns in groups and organizations. That makes so much sense. And, you know, another thing when I'm contemplating the success of communities or relationships, my thoughts turn to the elements of power, uh, responsibility, accountability, trust, which are kind of hard to define and difficult to uphold, but essential to examine. So I'm wondering, how does one balance power and responsibility within leadership roles? Well, in the Empowerment Manual, I talk about what I call the talisman of healthy groups, which is like a magic circle with um, power and responsibility, one being one axis, and accountability, communication, and trust being the other axis. And I think we balance power and responsibility when people gain power in a group by taking on responsibility and fulfilling it. And when people take on the responsibility, the group empowers them. The group gives them the authority, the license to use power uh, to do what it is they need to do. And if those two things are in balance, then a group is much healthier and has a much healthier chance of surviving and thriving. Envision this forthcoming cultural shift, a spectrum of options for governance structures arise. You know, we have anarchism and socialism, which often surface as healthier alternatives to our current state. Do either of these frameworks resonate with you, and what can we learn from them, in your opinion? Um, sometimes I've identified both as an anarchist and a socialist, right? Uh, in that what I like about anarchism is the idea of decentralization and of each person being, you know, their own authority. 
and of mutual care, mutual responsibility. But I actually believe we need government at this point in history, if only to protect ourselves from the greed and rapaciousness of corporations and capitalism. What I like about socialism is it says, hey, we get together and we collectively uh, care for one another. We pool our resources so that everybody has something. And I think that we very much need to do that in many ways. There are many ways in which, you know, we do, right? From things like, you know, providing education and things like roads and public health and all of that. Um, and I think we actually need to do more of that, uh, that we should be providing things like health care for everybody, uh, not just tied to work and not even just tied to Obamacare, but something like what other civilized countries have, a single-payer system where everyone's entitled to health care. We need to be providing education for everyone shouldn't be something you go into debt for half your life in order to get an education. Society should say, hey, it benefits all of us to have an educated population. So we need to be willing to provide that for the next generation. So for me, I think a healthy government is one that is committed to protecting those things that actually sustain life and defending them and putting resources toward them. So protecting the environment, um, protecting our health, educating the next generation, um, protecting our safety, not just with military defense, kind of a last resort, but there are so many other ways that we need to protect our safety. and I think that we need to do that collectively even if with something like fire department. Um, we need to do things collectively that are too big to do individually. And I think we need that collective power, again, to protect us from the greed uh, of the unbridled forces of capitalism. So my last question for you is around activism and the New Age. And I know that essential to many New Age thinkers is the power of transforming your consciousness in order to bring about change. And there is a potency to that. But I think there lies a fine balance between maintaining a positive consciousness and opening up to the grief of the world, to mourn the death of species And to empathize with suffering is to show respect. And to feel that pain is to fiercely love. And that letting the grief into your heart isn't the end, but only the beginning of a path towards action. Now, I've read that your work in permaculture and earth activist training, among many other endeavors, embodies this merging of personal transformation and tangible action. So I'm curious if you could share any ideas how the consciousness movement and the New Age can ally with resistance activism. Yeah, I think the thing about changing your consciousness is you don't change consciousness in a vacuum. 
You know, we're not living somewhere in outer space where there's pure consciousness and nothing else. Your consciousness is always interacting with everything else going on around you. And part of how you transform your consciousness is by engaging with what's going on around you and by acting with integrity. So if you have a belief that says nature is sacred and you see idiots destroying her all around, you can't just sit back on your behind. You have to take action and try to both prevent the harm and uh, generate the good. You know, if you believe that human beings are sacred vessels of spirit and light, then you can't sit back around when uh, police are shooting young black men or women, you know, just because of their color. Uh, You need to be active in working for justice. And in taking that action, there are thousands, thousands of opportunities to have experiences that allow you to engage and also transform your consciousness. Because, again, transformation isn't something that just happens when you're sitting up on the mountain meditating. Real transformation happens with every act you take, every step you take, everything you do in your daily life, everything you engage with as part of your transformative journey. Well, thank you so much, Starhawk, for taking the time to speak with us today. And I should probably say to people, I do teach permaculture design courses with a grounding in spirit and a focus on organizing and activism. Uh, you can find them at my website, starhawk.org or earthactivisttraining.org. Uh, we have one coming up in the summer in uh Midwest and in January in Northern California and also a couple in Europe this summer. I also am a writer and my book The Fifth Sacred Thing which is kind of envisions a future rooted in balance and permaculture and justice. It's now actually out as an audiobook that people can get on Amazon or Audible or iTunes, and it's the sequel, City of Refuge, uh, just came out last year, and that's also available online and through my website at starhawk.org and many other places. Thank you for listening to Starhawk on For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. This episode was produced in collaboration with Living Village Culture and The Compass at Lightning in a Bottle. Starhawk, along with myself and many other visionaries, will be speaking this year at the festival, so please join us. And don't miss Mentoring the Movement panel with Starhawk, Paul Stamets, Penny Livingston, and James Stark, moderated by me at The Compass at LIB. And get activated. The music you heard today was... Abigail Washburn with The Lost Lamb, then Magna Carta, Putting It Back Together, followed by Power by The Irresistible Force. Our theme music is Silence Return by Bo and Like a River by Kate Wolfe. The show is produced and edited by myself and March Young, and our research director is Madison Mogulski. Please visit forthewild.world and check out our other projects and donate if you can. 
Next week, I'll be facilitating a webinar with Joanna Macy on keeping sane and active amid mass psychosis. Register on ForTheWild.world or tune in on Facebook Live on For The Wild's page and leave comments and share. It will be May 18th at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Also, the Native Species Nursery will commence next week with pond building and earthworks. Stay tuned on social media and watch the meadow be transformed. <laughs>